really don't want to talk about this movie. Welcome to the vulgar auteurs with the, where we bring the auteurs and even hotter vulgars. Okay. Mark it to 25. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So actually welcome to the vulgar auteurs. Uh, This is a place where we examine the filmographies of genre filmmakers and where we are currently going through the films of James Wan. And this week we are discussing uh, The Conjuring 2 from 2016. And so uh, this movie opens with one of the most horrifying things a film can open with. And that is the Rat Pack Entertainment logo. Yeah. Was that in the other one or any other? Was this the only production that he made with uh, that production company? I feel like they had made something else together, but I guess I couldn't tell you what it was. Now, for that's um, Brett Ratner's production company, correct? Who's the alleged with uh, Russell Simmons? Uh like in some kind of uh, sexual assaults, alleged, you know, allegations and things. So he's kind of been, uh, and, you know, for X-Men 3. Uh, yeah. Uh, and just, even if he's innocent of all the charges of abuse that have been levied against him, and he's probably not. Uh, yeah. But right now we're saying alleged. Uh, he still inflicted Rush Hour 2 after after you know after we get done with James Wan we're still moving forward with Brett Ratner but mm-hmm. um, the other fun thing about Rat Pack is it's not just how, what a piece of shit Brett Ratner is it's also Steve Mnuchin was one of the financiers oh, of Rat Pack uh, I don't know okay. if you saw his name in the credits no uh, which I mean that's an interesting case because he's a total and complete scumbag, but he also Rat Pack also helped produce the greatest movie of all time, which is of course Mad Max Fury Road. Like, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, it's weird going back now and rewatching oh. it and seeing Steven Mnuchin's name in the credits of yeah. such a great fucking movie. Yeah. But he's also the producer of Suicide Squad, so whatever, fuck him. Well, I mean, it is it is a little weird, though. Like, I, I think I watched the Rush Hour trilogy maybe 10 years ago for the first time in a long time, and I remembered loving the first two. Mm-hmm. And all of them are, like, chocolate chipped with so many microaggressions and just racist, sexist, shitty shit all over the place. Like... And I think there's even allegations now of Chris Tucker. It's like everyone is. I don't kind know of... if there's allegations, but he definitely is in Jeffrey Epstein's flight logs with Kevin Spacey and Bill Clinton. So yeah. that's Gosh. that's not the also company future, you want to keep. <laughs> also, future Vulgar Tours guests uh, tune in for the Brett Ratner. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we actually have a big guest coming up: uh, Jeffrey Epstein from Beyond the Grave. Via, yeah, we're doing uh, a Ouija, yeah. first Ouija podcast. <laughs> it's like 
did you do what you're what you're being accused of? Yes or no? Like, no, you're moving it, Paco. <laughs> yeah, I'm not touching you're anything. Saying no. <laughs> <laughs> Ah. I mean, that would be a cue thing of like we contacted Epstein from beyond the grave <laughs> and he said he did not do it. Uh, no, they think he did it and they think like Tom Hanks and people are in on it. Dude, QAnon's so fucking bonkers. I I still remember when you told me what QAnon was. Like yeah. I think we're on the way back from the beach or something and uh, it's so weird how much that's enveloped the country. Like in, in America, uh, it's just so fucking weird. Well, now they're having big protests in like Germany and the UK and Canada as well. So uh, we poisoned the brains of the entire world. So Yeah. <laughs> good times. But yeah, it's really good times. The one funny thing is it's like, you know, in every conspiracy theory, there's like a tiny, tiny grain of truth. Uh, the UK one, they were outside Prince Andrew's mansion uh, screaming, pedophile, at him. <laughs> and, like, that motherfucker has fucked children. Like, that guy yeah. is the biggest pedo out there. And Which, not to say that, you know, his royal bloodline is splattered with a lot of, I'm sure, heinous, awful, terrible things in their closet. Mm. So it's it's kind of like an inherited trauma inducing or he's the uh you know latest line of that clan that kind of uh inflicts that type of abuse did you see the interview with him like from i think it was last year but where he said he couldn't sweat uh yeah (laughs) and that's why he was hanging out with jeffrey epstein (laughs) that was so embarrassing like didn't the uh didn't the they're not government but like didn't the family or whatever they're called uh come out and say yeah, like they they came out formally with like a statement saying like, I mean, for one, they didn't want him to talk at all. And mm-hmm. he wanted to preemptively get ahead of things, too. Right. So yeah. he came out before all of that stuff. And it's totally misleading and dismissive and bonkers. Like, it, yeah, like the no sweating thing. There's just there's so many weird facets of that that are embarrassing. Like, I think, you know, whereas what Prince... Andrew or Harry or whatever his name, just, you know, ostracized, you know, emancipated with his wife, you know, mm-hmm. and now have a Netflix deal. I feel like Andrew's going to be like totally kicked out and, you know, uh, tied up. Fucking hope so. He's yeah. like he and Alan Dershowitz are the two where everybody's like, yeah, they definitely fuck some children. Well, it's like, <laughs> did you read that report that came out? Uh, the like, fuck, like weeks ago is like maybe 800 pages in the allegations against uh, Maxwell and mm-hmm. Alan Dershowitz is like directly. Uh, yeah. Like named multiple times and he's still on like Twitter and you're like, how, like, well, and he's going on TV being like, I only ever went to this child sex Island with my wife, uh, and <laughs> shit like that. But, uh, one of the things those, uh, transcripts claim is he spent a lot of time at Epstein's penthouse in New York, which yeah. is where a lot of the trafficking occurred. And it's pretty he's either the biggest idiot or he knew what was going on 
at the very least. Totally. Like, there's not there's, just fourteen year old girls hanging out around some rich guy's mansion without sketchy shit happening. Well, I think too, like his power and influence, and probably free legal counsel and advice were super helpful to Epstein to get through a bunch of this stuff that mm-hmm. I just again allegedly. But uh, no, nah, uh, everybody knows Epstein was guilty. Like he's he's yeah. not alleged. Uh, no, for sure. So speaking of scumbags, criminals, and terrible things, uh, we're talking the Warrens in The Conjuring Part <laughs> That's 2. That's a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Speaking of assholes, this new mm-hmm. movie features the Warrens again. And uh, not only that, but uh, the Amityville horror uh, right in the, the opening. Yeah, uh, which, as we discussed in The Conjuring Part 1, the family related to the Amityville uh, case, in quotation marks, uh, later claimed that there was no possession. The Warrens basically misled people, and it led to at least one family member's uh, suicide because they didn't get the mental health treatment they need. Yeah. Um, I think I even read that like they were... like multiple investigations and one of them was like going on for months and the Warrens went there and within like three days were like, Oh, this, this is haunted for sure. And it mm-hmm. just goes into show that they're really after chasing that, you know, kind of boob as it were, as opposed to actually trying to figure things out from a logical uh, you know, standpoint. Which one of the things I think is interesting is I feel like, the filmmakers heard some of that criticism after the first film and include those, some of these claims, at least of them being grifters in the movie, uh, which we will get to. But yeah, this Amityville opening scene is a uh, seance that I found honestly surprisingly effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very spooky, and it's basically Vera Farmiga as this family killer uh, going from room to room, and uh, it uses jump cuts to get around like the real brutality of the murder. You know, it cuts from the victims being alive to them with the gunshot wounds uh, in a really unsettling and creepy way uh it's like you're watching along with it like and you can't do anything to stop it it's like yeah it there's a greater loss of control by some of the technique being used that i found creepy and effective i will say in this one i think the score works really well in terms of not going overboard into the tell me what I'm feeling mode and yeah. just sort of enhancing the scene. Like that's always a fine line to walk. And in this opening scene, it's walked pretty well. And eventually Farmiga slash the killer go to the basement where she sees the nun, mm-hmm. which much like Annabelle in the first movie is basically mostly in this movie as product placement for yeah. the next spinoff. It's like uh, Captain America Shield in uh, Iron Man 2. Yeah. Well, like, did they 
Artie Greenlight, the Nun spinoff, and there's a, apparently a Crooked Man spinoff that's been in the works for a while, or was it after the success of this movie that they were like, holy shit, let's do these spinoffs? Like, when was the one universe I think, created? Like, here? Well, the one universe, by like this point, I believe the first Annabelle movie had already come out. Mm-hmm. If I'm I think you're not right. mistaken, uh, I believe that was 2015. But she's featured uh, much less here in this movie and uh, probably because they didn't want to oversaturate the market with a bunch of Annabelle shit. Mm-hmm. But again, in that movie, The Conjuring, the idea was we'll just put some of Annabelle in here so audiences will be interested in this side film. Yeah. So that starts The Conjuring spinoff universe. And then they're trying to do it again with the nun here. And then in both cases, the year after the Conjuring film comes out, the spinoff film is released. Which, did uh, you see the nun? No, I saw the trailer and I was like, oh, I don't care. Well, um, I, I I saw it and it's, it's weird. It, it's almost like a, it's such a pedestrian movie that lacks, kind, like it has some really cool setups. And the mm-hmm. nun is a really interesting uh, visual and I think it's one of those things of like oh the visual's so cool let's make a whole movie ab- about it and it in doing so it kind of uh, releases the mystery and sort of spookiness of it but I was I was shocked to find out that the nun is actually the highest grossing so far of all of the conjuring things like all the Annabelle movies the conjuring movies didn't even make as much as the nun which That's is insane. Kind of, because it, 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 it's so strange because it's such a modest, low-budget movie like The Nun was. Um, mm-hmm. And it just sold like mad um, when it's such a... Like, it's a fun movie, like, in a, to a certain point, but it's kind of like a mediocre, not a, you know, special film. So it's mm-hmm. interesting. It's, it's interesting. I feel like horror is always walking a finer line between art and being a product than a lot of genres. Like, I would argue that some of the best, like the Wes Cravens of the world, don't necessarily intend for there to be 12 sequels of their films. They're just trying to make good, efficient, creepy movies. And I think one of the things that James Wan has mastered is walking the line of both the commercial producer, who is incredibly successful at packaging and selling a product, well, also being the artistic vision behind it, and I would say usually being quite successful as an artist as well. He's got that rare golden touch in both areas, and I find the spinoff stuff to be kind of grating at this point, because it feels like it's there as a plug for the next movie. However... I did like the nun is more incorporated into this film than Annabelle was into the first one. Yeah. I mean, she shows up, that character shows up right off the bat in the Amityville horror house, which wasn't part of the original kind of myth of what happened at Amityville. And mm-hmm. I think I, uh, I saw on IMDb, which I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but that um, a bunch of the nun moments were, uh, you know, from reshoots because they, it tracked so well with the people that saw it that they were like, oh, let's let's get this added to the movie for an extra, you know, creepy factor. Mm-hmm. Because that that moment uh, in the movie where like 
Patrick Wilson is working on that that painting that's just this beautiful painting, and he's just like, oh, I'm just goofing around in here. Uh, but that that just whole moment painting a horrible <laughs> like none. <laughs> But like that moment with Lorraine uh, in that room is like a really interesting bit of theater. Um, Mm -hmm. The seance ends with her seeing Patrick Wilson getting killed by the nun, jumpstarting the movie, and also sort of establishing one of the main points of conflict, which is she no longer wants to do these kind of big paranormal investigations. Like she thinks it's too dangerous and she doesn't want Patrick Wilson to die. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we go to London with always one of my favorite needle drops for going to London oh is London calling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's weird. Cause they even, uh, there's some spray paint graffiti that says I fought the law. And then mm-hmm. I think this movie takes place before London Calling came out so then it would have been interesting to have like something off the self-titled UK one like London is burning or something like and but I could be also getting my dates wrong but uh no I think you're right I think London Calling came out after 1977 yeah, uh like I but but yeah um it's so yeah, funny it, uh but but there, there's something I can't remember like if you're doing a Vietnam movie and yeah. you put CCR in, it's totally. It makes me roll my eyes a little bit, but I'm just glad Topper Hayden's getting some heroin money. Yeah, and the same with like, same with like Buffalo Springfield. It's like it, every time that you've listened to any Buffalo Springfield, it's in a Vietnam movie. Mm-hmm. It's. Uh, <laughs> and we're introduced to a new family. This is a single mom. And her four kids, uh, the main kids we really get to know are Janet. Mm-hmm. And the kid with the stutter is Billy, right? Or is he Johnny? There's there's two boys and two girls. I think you're right, Johnny. Yeah. yeah. And Peggy is the mom, played by Frances O'Connor. Dad has walked out of them, on them. They're living in council flats. It's... It's tough times for him, but we get one of these one touches that he's included in the past several of these movies, which I really like. Uh, it's just the long tracking shot through the house yeah. uh, that introduces us to the geography of the location as well as to who our characters are. I also like how this is a smaller family, so these characters, while still being relatively one-dimensional have a level of trait to them and they're distinguishable from the others unlike the first conjuring movie where it was five girls and it was impossible to tell who was who yeah i mean you have the dynamic of being like a single mother too and almost like in a different tax bracket like whereas Mm -hmm. like her townhouse looks i mean gorgeous i would love that place i mean it, it also it almost looks like you know, it's in a little bit of disrepair, probably like more on the nose, like film analysis of like, oh, because everything is kind of in disrepair. But I have mm-hmm. like, I think Frances O'Connor does such a good job expressing herself uh, or her character as being, you know, a good mom and working hard given, you know, all of these obstacles in front of her. Like, I, I really appreciated the work that she put in and adds to that eeriness too of like she doesn't have a support you don't have a patrick wilson or a girlfriend Mm -hmm. to run to 
to say like, oh, this weird thing happened. So now she's by herself and who does she rely on? You know? Well, she's got that girlfriend across the street, but it's fairly clear that all of them, I mean, these are basically public housing and everybody's got a lot of troubles. Mm -hmm. So she is kind of on her own. But, But going back to the long tracking shot, it's, it's, you're so right. Like it sets the geography of the location, but it also, it, it, there's so much foreshadowing of like, oh, cool. This little tent, I could see that being creepy later. Or you're like, you know, it's mm-hmm. like setting up for all of these things for you to think about. And and right off the bat, I, the two girls or the or the just Janet and Johnny, they're doing the, the Ouija board that they made. No, I, I think it was the two girls because okay. they have a room together. Like, Kamala and uh, I made this in arts and crafts. Yeah. But uh, uh, Janet and Margaret. Okay. Maggie. Uh, sorry, I promised myself I wouldn't do a, a really awful voice uh, other than my <laughs> own awful voice. But yeah, so they're doing that board game, uh, Ouija board. That was it. Did they make it by hand, like, or was it like a weird, like I found this somewhere? Because I thought they made it. I think it was something that they had made at some point. Yes, and they didn't move in recently at all, or like, had they been living in that house? No, but it was the dad had recently moved out. And as the Warrens explain later, at times of like loneliness and depression, it's easier for spirits to sort of come in and pray. Yeah, like you're susceptible to their influence and stuff. And this whole family is feeling the loss of the dad. But they say Janet especially is because she loved her dad a lot. So that makes her one of the more susceptible ones yeah which i think is why she then you know they have like a conversation with something with the ouija board that's unremarkable or i can't remember what the hell the interaction was i think it was like them thinking that they were talking to a boy or a child when you know maybe Mm -hmm. not because you know afterwards it cuts to her sleeping janet and then she wakes up in the living room like it just jump cuts to her laying down in the living room as if she was sleepwalking or led there. And mm-hmm. That's really where a bulk of the movie takes place is in that TV room. That chair, yeah. But at around this time, we also see when she's sleeping that her blanket is being pulled off her by an unseen force. Yeah. Her little brother, Billy, is playing with a tent in the hallway and around this time too his toy fire truck comes out he puts it in the tent yeah. and something pushes it back out and he starts freaking out too another point where the score is really effective in not doing the sharp like jump cut strings and just sort of omnipresent eerie music mm-hmm. throughout the scene that i thought really worked yeah, it's like he, he lets the scene play out and breathe, and then it's just there to accompany that. It's not there to cause a reaction. It's there to prolong that environment and vibe. Like it's, mm-hmm. It shows a, a pretty big, substantial increase from Insidious 2 and even like builds upon the first Conjuring movie as well. Because it was really interesting thinking about his last movie being Furious 7, and he's on record saying that he had turned down like a substantial amount of money to do the eighth installment and instead he wanted to go back to you know he felt quote rejuvenated to tell a scary story one more time which mm-hmm. i don't know if that means this is his last horror movie because malignant his forthcoming movie 
sounds kind of like a thrillery movie, maybe more of a thriller, but I felt like this was kind of bookending his career in some ways. Like it felt like this is the last one of these movies I'm making. Like there was just really well thought out cues and thinking back to even like dead silence how much he's changed since then and has really focused on his talents and enthusiasm to set up these amazing sequences. It was pretty interesting to think about. It It is really rewarding watching the run of his career and getting to this point, which does feel like the logical end result. It feels like his best haunted house movie mm-hmm. of his what he spent years of his life doing now in that Every one of these is so well executed and well directed. And the thought every step of the way is it's clear on the screen. Mm -hmm. And the rejuvenation thing makes a lot of sense because after having to watch 300 house movies in a row as an audience member, (laughs) I I was thrilled at the chance for uh, Furious 7. And yeah. I felt rejuvenated. Like I was still a little burnt out on the haunted house totally. uh, as a genre, but I thought it was still, it was okay to return to one last time because this feels like the culmination of years of his work. And it feels like he had the budget to do what he wanted to do and the time to do it the way he wanted to. And I don't know that he could do anything better than this. This is just, the apex of the haunted house, the James Wan haunted house film. And he even, uh, I think that going into it, he was totally okay with the R rating that he kind of wanted to push how eerie and of an atmosphere and how kind of cerebrally violent he could be like with, you know, the ghost, the main ghost of the movie is like this really abusive, scary thing that wouldn't be necessarily PG 13 for, you know, that reason. And then some of the more like really scary scenes that, that are in the movie, but. And it's, it's nice that he had the freedom because didn't yeah. the first conjuring get an R rating just for being scary. I think it was like the talk, like the graphic uh, uh, nature of like, you know, mm-hmm. someone coming from a tree and, and things like that, like thematic content and stuff. Gotcha. But, because like, this yeah. one, it feels like he knew no matter what he was going to get the R rating. And he uses it to his advantage a lot more. Yeah, I agree. And this is also substantially longer than the first conjuring movie, but didn't feel as long or it, it, it did get bogged down a little bit near the end, mm-hmm. but it's, it's interesting that it's almost like furious seven introduced him to like, Oh, you can make movies more than two hours long. Perfect. Cause this and Aquaman are also like over two hours as opposed to like his, short and snappy like hour and 40 minute you know thing that he he would he's capable of but Mm -hmm. yeah just really an interesting way to bring this credibility to this horror genre i think going into james wan was what i was looking forward to of seeing this and this is kind of the moment that we're at because it's also you're you're encountering like it's setting up all of these these ideas like janet talking to herself and how, you know, when the ghost of the main bad ghost is mm-hmm. is introducing himself, it's like, you know, this is my house and it gets really intense. And they, he does one of those really quick cuts of like showing 
the monster, the, you know, the ghost super close with our character mm. um, super quickly to like kind of jar you out of that state. And I think that it's, it's great that it takes place in a different country because you have a different context to what they're doing. And then you have, hence, you know, after all of these little things are, are happening, then uh, is this is where they call in the Warrens, right? Well, there's a bunch of these little scares. Uh, and yeah, the ghost likes the chair in the living room. But I feel like before they call in the Warrens, it gets a lot worse. Like, it doesn't her broom like starts getting pretty spooky. Like things are like swirling around in there beforehand. And so they run next door to the neighbors because the cops show up before they call the Warrens and like chairs are moving around and everything looks practical. Yeah. Like it doesn't seem over reliant on CG. Well, I think there's one point in later in the movie. That's like a big poltergeist point. That's all done in one shot or one, one take. Uh, mm-hmm. That's really impressive, and I think you're you're so right. Like it it it's still more of like the uh, sleepwalking and everything until Janet is on the couch, and I think Margaret Thatcher's on the television. Like she's the mm-hmm. remote, you know, is missing, and someone turned the channel, and it keeps you know really focusing on this brown chair that's in the corner that looks out of place and you know strange. And that leads into a really cool, spooky encounter that reminds me of Stir of Echoes, that Kevin Bacon movie movie from the 90s. Mm-hmm. But it's it's like she's, you know, starting to cough or uh, I think she's trying to find the remote and then sees an old man in the TV reflection and uh, has no time to process before again, like the quick cut of him right there, like yelling in her face. Mm-hmm. And then that's, I think, like where it cuts back to the Warrens. And this is where the, the big nun sequence happens of Lorraine expressing that she wants to kind of pull back a little bit from these, these main, you know, demonic, at least unrests. Yeah. Uh, sort of being haunted by the nun who might've followed them. And then it turns out like there's a sequence where all the doors are slamming shut and the windows are slamming. It's just a dream, but in her dream, she's been writing something in her Bible. And then we've got the other big plug, other than the nun, is Billy has a toy that does like a uh, a song about a crooked man walking a crooked mile, right? Yeah, like they always need like a, a spinning toy in all these fucking movies. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, gosh, what's it called? Like you light a candle or it's a light and it's like rice paper that spins so that it's what's it called? It's like a something phone or something, something. Uh, Gramophone, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Like, yeah, it's like moving all of these still images to make an animated thing on like this lampshady looking thing. The most famous one is like a horse running from like 150 yeah. years ago. Totally. I think that's called a gramophone. So yeah, then the crooked man in this thing disappears and shows up in real life. And the actor who does this, I think does a really good job. His name was Javier something. I don't remember what. He was also in like... Was he in Big Fish? Maybe? Is it that same actor? I don't know. He was in... What's that Del Toro movie? That's also kind of a haunted house movie with Loki and Charlie Hunnam and uh That's not Crimson Peak, is it the Crimson Peak, yeah. Really? He's in that as kind of also a spooky guy. Gosh, totally don't remember that. Huh. 
apparently he they didn't do any CGI, but they have him move almost like he's in stop motion. And according to an interview with James Wan, that was actually the actor moving like that. Hmm. But I don't think it could have just been the actor. It definitely feels like they enhanced it just with stop motion. Yeah. Or even like forced perspective. Like there's some wonky, like interesting camera techniques that they're using to like exaggerate that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Like especially later in the movie with the, the puppy it's kind of an interesting thing that James Wan does here too. And I can't recall, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like when they introduce the puppy with the bell and you're like, okay, Mm -hmm. what's going to happen with this? And it's just, it's uh, immediately that puppy became the only thing I cared about in this movie because it was so cute. Uh, It was so cute. And leads to like the coolest, one of the coolest sequences with the crooked man character later in the movie too. Which I think it was actually around this point uh, because they're staying with the neighbors, right? Well, I think that what was going on was um, I jumped a little bit. Like it's, I think it keeps cutting back and forth between the Warrens and this family. And mm-hmm. when the blankets finally ripped off Janet, they all freak out and run out of the house and they call the constable to come in. And these, you know, two police officers show up and are walking around and are just like, there's no evidence of anything and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I think that's where like you see the nun again, like the nun appears in their house. I don't remember that. Cause I think that's when um, Vera Vermiga is doing like the dream sequence and carving it into the Bible. Mm -hmm. And, and this is also where the girl becomes possessed uh, like when it cuts back to her, finally, the the Janet girl, mm-hmm. I think there's like a priest, like the mom is called a priest and they're doing this really cool knock, knock setup, right? Yeah. Where it's like knock, knock. Here. This is where Janet's like, my name is Bill Wilkert and I'm 72 years old. Hello. Yeah, which was super awesome and, and granted in real life the the kid or the maybe as an adult janet the real janet said that she could throw her voice mm-hmm. and that a lot of it was all kind of uh, made up or hooey mm-hmm. as they say um, across the pond totally but he's saying like i'm bill wilkins i come from the grave i fell asleep and died in the chair in the corner and it's almost like a little bit of that expository dialogue because it seems kind of random from going from like, this is my house, get the fuck Mm -hmm. out to, you know, things of that. And did you catch uh, where they discussed the couch and how it's like the chair was bought by the husband or something? So like, yeah, um, I think if I understood it right, the husband bought all the furniture, but in terms of the logic of the movie, he would have bought it when they like moved in and just bought it from the people who lived there before. Cause supposedly hmm. Bill dies oh. in the chair in the house, yeah. but okay. that didn't quite all make sense to me. I think that's what it has to be. Yeah, you're right. So that all happens and they're like, huh, well this is weird. And that, so they're all sleeping in the living room and they're fucking terrified. And that's when uh, the dogs... They were sleeping in the neighbor's living room. Uh, like, they're sleeping across oh, okay. the street. Well, because I think that's when the dog turns into... Yeah, because it's the neighbor's dog. 
Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Pardon me. Sorry. Yeah, okay. yeah. So the neighbor's dog has been trained to ring a bell. When it wants to go outside or has Yeah. To and so Billy wakes up and there's a bell ringing, but he goes to the front door and there's no dog. And he goes to the back door and the dog slowly turns into the crooked man and sort of chases Billy, right? Yeah, he comes after him. Um, mm -hmm. And I think he's just talking or scratching or there's but the the way that it's done is like super german expressionistic kind of like the light kind of skews and they're using like cgi had to have amplified it sure but like mm -hmm. they're just using really clever force perspective to make it look as eerie and weird like almost lynchian with how it looks strangely augmented um and then i think that's uh like that's where they really incorporated him trying to move the actor trying to move in stop motion and stop motion in general, I believe was used to get yeah. that overall creepy movement pattern. And then the crooked man turns into Janet, right? Like that's how that sequence that. Yeah. Calling her name or something. Gosh. Yeah. I can't remember, yeah. but I think that, that was the last straw though. And I think that's when the priest, comes back or comes into the picture and is just like i work on the toughest cases you mm. know uh, the the you know archdiocese isn't going to you know let us do this or something and i think he's the one who goes to the warrens or does the mom no i don't think the mom reached out in the first one but i think the priest knew you know the seven degrees of kevin bacon found the warrens that mm -hmm. way yeah because it's an american church representative that actually shows up and is like we can't do anything right now but if you could investigate on behalf of the church because by this point they've gone on tv and there's all this shit and so like it's too high profile and the church doesn't want to be embarrassed yeah and the warrens have some more like well i don't know if we should because i don't want you to get hurt type shit yeah before they actually go and do it and then of course, they go and do it. Like, <laughs> I hate scenes like that because there's yeah. no tension in it because you know what's going to happen. And they're not, like, forced in an interesting way. Yeah. So then they go to London and they start investigating. Yeah. And do they, don't they play another, like, they play, like, a Sex Pistols song or something? Because every time that someone has to, you know, go to England in this movie, then they play something of that era. Which, did you get any of uh, maybe possible James Wan influences throughout this English uh, section when the Warrens show up, like, you know, anything that comes off your head. Cause like, I was thinking there were some moments that were almost like the omen in terms of like imagery. I could see that. Or even like slow burning stuff, like the banging sequence that was kind of like the changeling uh, with uh, George C. Scott. Is that what it is? I've Change? never seen that whole movie. But there it's... is a movie called The Changeling with Church C. Scott. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's even an English movie, but it's just like this. No, I think uh, it was shot in Seattle. Yeah, like it, it's um, it's just, it's interesting because he he kind of, or even like the entity or, or like a lot of like UK horror influences where I feel like he was using a much more modest approach. Like it's not as flashy as Insidious or as like, like, 
I don't know. It's not as like Hollywood as the first Conjuring. It's just kind of like this interesting him having total control. I didn't really feel that. I felt like it was maybe more focused, but it was just as flashy in its own way. Like mm-hmm. the first Conjuring, it part of it is about all the different horrible things that have happened on that land over the centuries. But this was just like basically the one occurrence which is why it's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess. I don't know. Is this where the interview where Janet is like, you all need to turn around. Yes. While she puts water in her mouth. Mm-hmm. Well, what did you think about this? I thought it was pretty well done. It's all done in one shot where uh, it basically just racks focus to Patrick Wilson as Janet sort of, as Bill says all this creepy stuff about being a demon and it's, it's very effective. And then it racks focus back as she spits the water out. Well, like as he's having a conversation, it's like you're seeing her silhouette Mm -hmm. slightly change when she starts talking. And the, the, the big crux of this, of this uh, scene is that she has water in her mouth because they're trying to test of like, Hey, if you can have this this bill come out, then let's make sure that you're not just throwing your voice or talking in a different tone. Mm-hmm. And so, by the time that the scene ends and she's slowly changed back, like her blurred silhouette kind of changes back, then she spits out the water, and it's like, wow, that was such a, an effective scene to display what's going on. But it it almost seemed a little empty too because you forgot that there were other characters in the room. Like I think it would have been more interesting if for some reason it was just between the two of them or, or something. Cause there's no reaction of any of the other characters. I think it works because the other characters are sort of watching and being an audience themselves. I mean, obviously they're, they're not watching literally because they have to turn around as well, but doing that all in the one shot gives it the like prowess where you can have these subtle things going on with janet without it being over the top and beating you over the head that's true and then he doesn't have to explain it to all those characters later of like oh this is what happened like Mm -hmm. they've seen it firsthand yeah that's a good call but i loved it i thought it was awesome that's what i remember (laughs) from my last watch of this movie was the that scene Mm -hmm. (laughs) that and the dog turning into the crooked man scene are the two scenes that really stand out Totally. Well, I mean, you also don't see a lot of films of this type or like a ghost movie Mm -hmm. doing such a scene that takes its time and is frightening in a different way. Like, it's not like something jumps at you. It's the whole proposition of why you're in the room and who you're in the room with. I would argue that this is, from this point on, the movie really loses steam. Uh, Totally. Like, up to this point, it's effective and scary and then there's a scene after scene about, is this real? Is she faking it? Like, do we believe her? Because everything's done in a way where the Warrens never actually see anything. Like, we, the audience, see Janet floating in the air with, like, everything in the room spinning around her and her teleporting into her bedroom. Mm-hmm. But the Warrens don't see it. And it just... Going back to the runtime, I feel like if you cut out several of these scenes, uh, the pacing would be a lot better because I just 
started checking out. And then there's a scene where Ed Warren plays fucking Elvis oh, for all the kids, God. and you're just like, now, hold on. Now their dad rolled out on them, and the subplot of that is that their dad would play them all this these Elvis records, these American Elvis records. Which the big payoff is ultimately little did we know that Patrick Wilson or you know Ed knows how to play guitar and just you know strums out this uh, Elvis. Uh, God, why am I blanking that? Uh, fools, Ru- fools, fools rush in. Yeah. Um, I can't help falling in love with you. Yeah, but the most yeah. important thing is <laughs> the ham. Fine, the kind of short like foreshadowing is. Take my hand. Part of it, yeah. because oh, belt it. that's belt it, baby. That's the climax of the movie. Yeah, but it's also there's all these little nuggets. Like Janet is accused of smoking at school <laughs> because, like, Bill Wilkin. I, I think it's almost like okay, is this a way of them saying okay, this has kind of been discredited or. You know, of like, oh, mm-hmm. she was kind of doing that voice, that smoky voice at school. Maybe she wasn't actually smoking. Or was it that that Bill was coming out at school uh, and that she was just like throatily smoking uh, or, you know, coming through with that throaty voice like he died of emphysema or something? Well, I, I thought it was just she was considered untrustworthy by everyone because even as early as the start of this movie where she's caught with a cigarette. And she's it's saying true. she wasn't smoking it. Yeah. She's a little girl that like a lot of people think is a liar. And I think it's yeah. just as simple as that. I don't know. I think it's like an after school special of like, this is what happens when you smoke, you get fucking possessed by someone who died mm-hmm. of emphysema. Uh, yeah. But she like, after that, she like wakes up on the ceiling too, and there's more immersion of like that uh, old man being seen much more, and it's that chair is kind of like the focal point of the, the mm-hmm. house. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> much like this movie, I'm running out of steam about things to talk about near the end. So I guess the next most important thing is. During the scene where he plays Elvis, he also talks about how important it is to stand up for Janet. And then that inspires one of the brothers to go into the kitchen when Janet says Bill's been stabbing stuff. This was so confusing. All the doors get slammed shut and none of the adults can get in. And the kitchen gets wrecked and the kid, the boy is hiding in a closet when they can get in and somehow there's footage somewhere of a camera showing that Janet was doing the whole thing. And so everybody's like, Oh, well the whole thing's fake. Like she was faking it. Yeah. And then the Warrens are like about to leave England when they put these two tape recordings, they have to build together. And it says like his actual message, which is like, I'm being possessed basically. And it's actually been the nun the whole time. One more needle drop, though, that I think I first experienced in Shrek. When characters are splitting up and don't trust each other, the I started Mm -hmm. a joke, started the whole world crying song. It's just 
another one of those cliche needle drop songs that is always happening. I don't know who the music supervisor was on this movie or if James Wan explicitly wanted the songs, but bad taste. Bad taste. Uh, Just very, like the score is great, but the soundtrack is so cliche. Well, and um, did they use the same set as the it movie the first uh part one or whatever because the basement like she's like oh there's a leak downstairs and this is where like lorraine is kind of having her faith tested was kind of like her arc was kind of like just more of her faith being tested if she's on the right path and should she is this Mm -hmm. the right what she should be doing and things but i thought that there was going to be like a a, an interesting love triangle-y thing where you have uh, Frances O'Connor as kind of a vulnerable woman and you're seeing Patrick Wilson sing to the kids and kind of, you'd think that there would be kind of like a, not like a, a subplot or anything, but like a quick moment to show his faith in his own marriage and her kind of being confident to make a move, you know, after her husband's gone or something. Um, if that makes any sense, <laughs> but uh it doesn't really go anywhere. What do you mean? Can you elaborate on that a little? Oh, sure. I'm trying to think of like an example where this happens. Like, um, I think Lorraine is split up from them. And this is like, it, they make a couple of, uh, they cut over during him singing the song uh, over to the mom character. And she's looking at him in a certain way that shows like admiration on a level that's not necessarily like, you know, uh, like a, a genuine general way that, you know, for the context of the situation. And mm-hmm. then um, she like asks him to do something in the basement. Like there's a tiny leak. And then it turns out to be this basement full of waist deep water. And it's like, what, what are you talking about? There's a tiny leak, but um, that there would be, you know, she's scared and vulnerable that maybe there were miscues. Like I could have sworn there was something earlier in the movie where Lorraine and Ed kind of, disagree about something and it's really weak but yeah no they've they've been disagreeing the whole movie because yeah. lorraine doesn't want to lose him but she's worried about him dying oh god kill, it's just someone kill me like, i think really i think what you're saying is really interesting but i totally did not read any of that subtext in there see that's, that's interesting that was all over it for me it was like which i ultimately think is i mean maybe that's not the intention because it's ultimately a little misogynistic as well of like, you need a woman needs the stability of a man to mm-hmm. feel okay. But I think of it more as like a, a woman standing up for herself. She's also taking back her house. She's taking back her family that ultimately while the Warrens were there, it was her confidence and her, you know, it's kind of the, like the same similar arc from the first conjuring where Lily Taylor needed to be reminded of, this bright spot in her life. And it was kind of like, she needs the power to take back the house. I thought of it more as just pure gratitude. Like these good, wholesome Americans are willing to be like the helpful, like good neighbors that no one here can be like, Mm -hmm. they're just, they're like cliches of what, like the moral majority, like, super christian people are like you know like yeah so clean cut and they're fucking ned and mod flanders uh basically <laughs> so i guess lorraine 
sees that uh, really Bill Wilkins is just this confused old man spirit who wants to go see his family and is stuck in this purgatory that this demon Valak, who they know from a previous, was that from the first movie Valak? I guess some demon or something. No. I, so yeah, the nun is Valak. But I kind of thought of that more as like a, a, where you were seeing like English horror movies. I was thinking of uh, John Constantine uh, because he's always fighting English demons. And like, I feel like Hmm. that was always a thing in his comics where like, if he knows the name, sometimes he can cast them back to hell. Yeah. But it, the logic there is a little weird. I don't quite get it. Well, because I mean, that's really like the finale of the movie is like, it's again, I get like the, the omen vibe uh, ending mm-hmm. we're at, like a bay window and the way that the, uh, the kiddo is, is framed and everything. It's kind of like final destination. Those, those movies where you see where everything in the context of that situation makes sense. Like this, um, cracked wood thing that keeps appearing to Lorraine and you know mm-hmm. he him getting kind of like uh, I don't even know what you pierced like through the mouth like upwards uh, you know by impaled. impaled thank you fuck yeah. uh, but like all of these little things are like all clicking um, and then it's just like oh uh, you know say my name and I'm taking in the power of Jesus to take your name back so that you don't have power. And that's it. <laughs> you know, like, it's just really yeah. weird. It's like, it's something that you would see in like an, are you afraid of the dark episode or like tales from the crypt of like, just a quick conceit that is kind of like, huh? So mm-hmm. it's like Beetlejuice where there's some power in your name. Some, it just seems like a weird, like quick ending to tie things up. Which, again, like, they do some world building with, like, the Annabelle shit and the nun shit. You'd think they would say, like, there are different ways to dispel demons. Like, sometimes you just need their names, other times you need this or that. But they don't ever explain why the name is what does it. Yeah. I don't know. Like, the movie kind of falls apart, but I do think it's well crafted in its falling apart if that makes sense like it's one of those things where like a jj abrams movie or even a christopher nolan movie when you're watching it it all makes sense yeah it's not until you're like (laughs) thinking back on inception or literally any jj abrams movie where you're like wait how did they jump from there to there that doesn't make sense yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's sort of like being intoxicated by the highway, you know, where mm-hmm. you could be driving for an hour and drive X amount of miles, but you're like, fuck, I thought it was like 10 minutes. It's like you were hypnotized. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with some of these movies where like during the movie, you're like, oh my fucking God, like this movie is amazing. Like knowing with Nicolas Cage is like life altering this movie is the most <laughs> important cinematic experience and then you leave and you're like, that was uh, not necessarily, you know, the cream of the crop. But uh, mm-hmm. when you think about it, it's kind of like you get intoxicated with that adrenaline that you're feeling at the moment and you get kind of hypnotized by it and don't want to it's like kind of poke holes in it, which I'm guilty of, too. But um, yeah. 
and especially with the way this movie ends where it's kind of like this pro-christian not that that's a negative thing you know but like uh it is (laughs) (laughs) but it's 2020 but if get a new god (laughs) let's try another one out we've had this god for how long yeah Um, dude but it's 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 just it ends on such a cheesy level in like a hallmark way of like because we trusted in Jesus's name, we, you know, this mm-hmm. wouldn't have been, you know, we wouldn't have been able to do it without him, capital H. Um, <laughs> but uh, what's interesting to me is, uh, do you remember in the first movie, the first Conjuring movie, the way that the Warrens are introduced, they're playing like a movie from uh, in their class, they're presenting to their class uh, at yeah. the university and they play like a super eight or something of like someone being possessed and mm-hmm. the nun spinoff is the back door to that. I think if I remember right, like Interesting. what you see in that clip is the after effects of what occur in the nun movie, but the nun movie huh. doesn't have the charm as, as the, you know, original conjuring movies. Um, but it's it's pretty interesting that this was such a monumental, once again, like a, a huge success for James Wan. Um, uh, quick question: Have you seen any of the Annabelle movies? No, <laughs> I haven't seen any. Okay, have you? No, I I've heard they're good. I just I don't I, like, like the boy, and there's so many like doll movie like quirk. I'd like Chucky, but. Only kind of. And I feel like Chucky works because it doesn't take itself too seriously. And especially the back half of Chucky, like the back yeah. half of that collection, like post, you know, Bride of Ch- with Bride of Chucky and moving forward is all sorts of fun and wild. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I just don't really like, like a bunch of like, oh, the dummy is haunted or anything because it's just a little boring. But uh mm-hmm. And especially like the Annabelle movies look like they're drenched in let's convince people that this is real when it's all really like overly bullshit. bullshit. Yeah. Uh, but um, I mean, it was a huge success. Like the idea that they're still churning these out. Um, the third conjuring I think was supposed to come out this year. Uh, and now it's and, coming out next year. And I think in a previous episode, I had said that James Wan returned for the third one, but I think he just was on as producer. Someone else took over. That sounds right. So would you recommend this movie? And also, do you was this released in 3D or anything? Like was there any kind of 3D elements that you think that James Wan would probably use in the future if he made a horror movie in terms of like ambient uh, you know, horror or anything? I don't know anything about it being released in 3D. Do you think that horror movies, um, there, there's going to be kind of like an avatar of horror that's not like the, you know, Piranha 3D or... I was going to say, the avatar of horror already happened, that and it is, is Piranha fantastic. 3D. Some of the best 3D I've ever seen. That and, like, Coraline. But... Uh, when the piranha barfs up the dick oh and it goes right towards the audience, together. it's and, like uh, it, it was it was an exceptional experience. It it was that in Jackass 3D that sold me on the entire idea of 3D being used in the way it should always be used. But I feel like horror, like mm-hmm. to make like a like a straight up scary movie, um, would be fascinating to use some of those effects, or even like if you had like a a special surround sound system to go along with those effects going on inside you. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, 
uh, back to your question of would I recommend this movie? Uh, I guess I would recommend it over the first Conjuring, possibly over Insidious. I think it's the most like the first one or the second one. Definitely more than the second one. Probably more than the first one. I feel like the script has a lot of issues in the second half that kind of kill the pacing of the film. But yeah. this is James Wan's best executed haunted house movie. Like Insidious has some really interesting things in the latter half, but uh, just the overall direction of the scares and his comfort of how like he just knows where to put the camera for mm -hmm. this movie that just comes with time and experience and yeah well it's like he has he has an energy that's like i know where to put the camera because if i was this person and i was looking at it from this way it would terrify the shit out of me like you can tell that he has carefully worked with the cinematographer to like have a great um, dynamic of putting you there and making you feel the intensity of those mm -hmm. situations. Yeah. I think it's a, like it's confident. Like this is a confident yeah, movie. This is him basically being like, I know what I'm doing. I am one of the best in the game. And this is me. This is Michael Jordan retiring and then unretiring from the haunted house movie. Totally. Yeah, he comes back to do yeah. <laughs> the Monkey Shines remake. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, does that make Furious 7 Michael Jordan playing baseball? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know enough about sports. But yeah, I guess I'd recommend it. I think it's well done, even if it doesn't always work for me. And do you think that he is going to do another horror movie? Like, do you think that's part of his DNA? <sighs> I mean... Malignant sure as hell sounds like a horror movie just from the title. Yeah. I haven't been able to find a bunch on it because I haven't really looked. I've been obviously when that comes out, we'll cover it. And I was hoping to just be kind of surprised by it. So we'll see. Yeah, I think this movie is pretty fun. Um, I can't imagine that he's done with horror. I think that he seems like he's moving in such a at, at such a breakneck pace in terms of like the, the ideas that he's going for. And he's not, you know, malignant being, I think it's an original property. It's not uh, related to anything else. Mm -hmm. um, as far as I know. Uh, and it just seems like he's going to have another creative resurgence that uh, like he's trying something new and he's challenging himself far. I mean, still within the realm of Warner brothers and, you know, heading the Aquaman movies and stuff, but mm -hmm. um, it's just like a, I feel like um, this is such a strong movie and it's such a diverse, uh, you know, watching fast and furious or furious seven. And then this was just wild. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty pleased with it. I think it's probably my favorite of his ghost movies. And thank God those are done. Thank Balak. All right. That means next week we are covering uh, the last or the most recent of James Wan's films, 2018's Aquaman. We're going snorkeling. So uh, we will catch you next week. 
Till then, please remember to rate, review, subscribe, do all that stuff, and uh, please don't forget to go fuck yourselves. I just made eyebrows at Paco. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but yes, please. And uh...